In this episode, I speak with Reverend Dr. William F. Schultz. He's a Unitarian Universalist minister who is most known for his role as the executive director of Amnesty International USA from 1994-2006. He is a prominent spokesperson, activist, and author of a number of books, particularly in the themes of human rights. Currently, Reverend Dr. William Schultz is a senior fellow at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. He retired from teaching as an affiliate faculty member at Midville Lombard Theological School in January 2020. Hello, everyone. Today, it is my pleasure to be in conversation with Reverend Dr. William F. Schultz. Uh, he is the author, the co-author of The Coming Good Society, Why New Realities Demand New Rights. This book is co-authored with Sushma Raman. And for us, um, this conversation is really important because uh, Dr. Schultz really asked us to, to rethink uh, how we understand human rights and their import for not only the 21st century, but the kinds of society in which we want to live in and live into. So I'm very pleased uh, for, for your time, uh, Reverend Dr. Schultz, and this opportunity. And I would like to then give you uh, the space. Tell us about the genesis and what is the, the main idea that you would like us to understand. Well, thank you, Dr. Ortega. Human rights as something inside us, something that we possess, sort of like I possess gray hair and a tendency to put on weight. Human rights are actually reflective of our transactions with one another and with the world around us. And that they define, human rights define what a good society looks like around the concept of dignity or flourishing, because obviously dignity has always been at the heart of the human rights enterprise. So what it may be true that we will want to assign rights, not just to other human beings, that's long been established, but we may also want to assign rights to other entities. And specifically, we talk about animals, robots, and nature or the ecosystems of which we are a part. The fundamental conviction of the book is that rights are not set once and for all, but in fact that they develop, evolve, and change. Within our own lifetimes, we've seen that happen. If you had asked someone when I was a student at Meadville Lombard in the early 1970s, whether the right to gender equality, to marriage equality, would have been recognized and established in 10 states, uh, in 10 countries around the world, and by the United States Supreme Court here in the United States, I would have laughed you off the altar. The first country to recognize marriage equality was the Netherlands, and it only happened in 2001. That's a perfect example of the way in which conceptions of rights evolve and change over the years. When I was at Amnesty International, which I served as executive director here in the United States, 
I was constantly preoccupied, of course, and quite appropriately with the violations of rights that were well established and were going on right now, the rights not to be tortured, the rights to free speech, to freedom of religion and so on. Those are well established rights. But I kept asking myself, what am I missing? 500 years ago, if anyone had claimed that there was something wrong with slavery, they would have been laughed out of the room. But today, of course, it's second nature to us to assume that slavery is a violation of human rights. So I asked myself, a generation from now or two generations from now, what will people look back at me or at people of my generation and say, why didn't you recognize that at a right as a right? just as we today recognize the right not to be enslaved as a well-established right. So that's really the essence of the book, is an attempt to look at how rights that we currently recognize, like the right to privacy, for example, may evolve or may need to evolve over the next generations with new technological advancements, and whether there will be whole new sets of rights attributed or assigned to robots or to nature itself. That's the gist of the argument and of the book. Thank you for that magnificent introduction. And I would admit, perhaps for for, my, for our audience, um, it would be helpful for us to, to really hear more uh, around this very interesting development and the ways in which your challenges to consider both, right, the perhaps implicit human rights in nature, but also in, in robots. And I think th th this is one of those elements, right, on, on Western society and modern society in which, you know, humans, we have been so, so clever and efficient of separating ourselves from nature, right, in, in very intriguing ways to our detriment, but also to develop connections to, to technology, right, in some ways as extension um, of our senses uh, in very unique ways. So t tell us a bit more, right, in, 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 that concept, in your own conceptualization, uh, what are some of the intrinsic rights, um, not only that we can attribute to nature, but that can impact how do we relate to the natural world, right, if we grant some notions of human rights, uh, but also how would this impact our relationship to technology? So let's talk first about robots and, and then about nature. First of all, let's remember, people often say to me, but robots are just machines. They don't have feelings. It doesn't matter whether how you treat a robot. And of course, on some level, that's true. But it's important, I think, to recognize that there are human entities such as babies who are born uh, without fully functioning brains and encephalic babies. There are people who experience various kinds of cognitive disabilities who also cannot respond in the normative way of consciousness, but yet are still appropriately claimants of rights. So the fact that robots are, quote, machines, quote, unquote, is not a reason to deny that we may want to assign robots rights. Now, why would we want to do that? Well, I think there are two broad reasons. In my book, I described an experiment that a, uh, a scientist uh, named Kate Darling conducted with a group of people to whom she handed little toy robots that looked like children's toys. 
in the form of a dinosaur, a little tiny toy dinosaur. And she asked the people to play with those uh, toy uh, dinosaurs, those robotic dinosaurs, just as they would play with stuffed animals or as their kids would. And then after a while of them playing with those animals, she asked them to kill them, to destroy the the pleos, they were called, to destroy these these toy robots. And the people couldn't do it. They didn't want to do it. And the reason they didn't want to do it was not because on a rational level, they thought that that machine was going to suffer in some ways the way a real uh, animal might or human being. It was because of what it would do to them and what a society would look like in which we went around randomly and capriciously destroying those images that were, were built to appear lifelike and real to us. What would that do to us? That was the question. So one reason to think about rights for robots, and we're not talking about rights for Roombas for your vacuum cleaner. We're talking about rights for social robots. And there are more and more such social robots uh, at work. In Japan, for example, Mm -hmm. nursing is done in good measure by nursing robots. Uh, And particularly now at a time of uh, the pandemic, that's uh, particularly important. So that's one reason. I think Germany has a prototype of, uh, of a chaplain robot. Yes. Well, yes, there's psychotherapy is being done by robots. So that's one reason. What does it do to us? Is that the kind of society we want to live in? And then there's a second reason, and that is more an evolving reason. But there is something called deep learning neural networks that are very sophisticated robotics able to analyze able to analyze reams and reams of data and eventually in some cases to even make decisions well beyond the original programming which has brought them into being to make decisions for themselves and it may well be that such robots will evolve to the point where They are demanding rights. It may well be that they evolve to the point where they can experience grief, for example, where they can suffer in some way. And of course, at that point, we're into an entirely different realm where we seriously need to consider whether we want to grant rights to robots. So that's the robotic piece of this in very broad terms. And then you've asked about the rights of nature. Well, of course, uh, if we were part of many indigenous cultures around the world, including in parts of our own country, we wouldn't think it at all surprising that nature was regarded as full of life and therefore ought to be ascribed uh, some rights. Uh, In fact, the Constitution in Bolivia uh, uh, assigns rights to Mother Earth, Pachamamba. Uh, A river in New Zealand has been provided legal rights and in India and in Australia. And essentially what we're saying here is that, again, let's remember the definition of rights. It describes our transactional relationship with the world around us in terms of dignity or flourishing. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, do we want to live in a world in which nature itself the ecosystems upon which we are dependent for our own lives are themselves worthy of protection and expression of their dignity. 
we can do it with laws. And we do, of course, have various different laws that protect against toxicity and pollution and so on. But to ascribe a right to nature is to elevate the importance and the dignity of that creation. And that on some level is a religious concept. And it also, of course, is elementary to our own survival. Thank you. That is a dimension of the conversation that I wanted to to hear more from you, because as as I hear you talking about in some ways that the contractual nature of of human rights, there's something that sounds to me um, as covenantal living, right? Enter into particular kind of covenants for the well-being and flourishing of, of the collective. And of course, for Unitarian Universalists, uh, that, that is a particular notion that we affirm as a secret, but that also guides our community. So would it be fair to say that with this kind of larger um, embrace or understanding of human rights, we can also deepen the way in which we understand um, our human relations instead of covenant in religious communities? Absolutely. Absolutely. Human rights are about covenant. It's quite interesting. Traditionally, of course, human rights have been large, understood as largely assigned to individuals. We talk about, I have the right to free speech or to practice my religion or whatever it may be. But in fact, as we define human rights as transactional, as a description of the good society, we are right on the edge of requiring some kind of covenant or describing human rights as a covenant that we make with one another, but with the larger world around us, with the larger creation around us. And in fact, I I mentioned very briefly at the end of the book, or we do, uh, Sushma and I, uh, that uh, as we explore new worlds in this universe, we may well be uh, in need of extending the concept of rights beyond even the earth itself. So absolutely, uh, I would say that, uh, that covenant is at the heart of the human rights enterprise. And, and speaking about covenants, but I think covenant um, among nations, uh, uh, an element that's that I think one of the most fascinating chapter to me uh, in in this book. You already talk about robots, but it's the chapter that deals with robot robots, war, and and weapons. Um, and g- given your own trajectory as a defender of human rights, uh, what are some of the challenges, right, that you are uh, seeing not only today but into the future, right, as weaponry and war gets more uh, advanced? right, more technological, but also as the human element, right, is oftentimes more separated, right, from the decision-making in the field, right, versus that decision-making miles and miles away. Yeah, this is the most, one of the most challenging areas of the book, autonomous weaponry. So essentially, most nations are committed to what is called in-the-loop weaponry, which means that autonomous weapons function in response to directions that have been given them by human beings. But there are also developed what are called out-of-the-loop weaponry. And out-of-the-loop weaponry is weaponry in which the machines themselves make the decisions about who to target and when to issue a lethal Uh, response to that target. And that's, of course, where we get into uh, 
no longer just the realm of science fiction. We're no longer just talking about the Terminator. We're talking about real weapon systems that have been already that are already developed. Uh, whether they've been deployed or not yet is uncertain, but they're already developed and they're certainly on the horizon. Now, some would argue that there are real advantages to having warfare conducted between robots, between weapons. Obviously, you potentially save, uh, potentially save a lot of human life. But at the same time, if you have autonomous weapons, out-of-the-loop weaponry, in which uh, the weapons are able to make the decision about targeting uh, and deployment of weapons, deployment of lethal force, um, you can't really be certain that those autonomous robotic weapons are going to deploy them in ways that we human beings want them to be deployed and against targets that we want to target. Um, And so I think this is a a tremendously complicated area. It's why many human rights organizations have campaigned against the development of any kind of autonomous weaponry. Uh, Killer robots is the popular name for it. And uh, there is a campaign against killer robots. Uh, But, um, you know, the sobering uh, real reality is that, uh, Throughout the history of humanity, um, if you have had the possibility of creating a weapon, it's always been created. It's always been created. And it's hard to believe that that won't be the case here as well. You know, something that I wonder if you can expand, because as I, that this chapter precedes the chapter on, on, on the rights of nature. And I, I couldn't help but, but think, right, there's something about the development of technology that can be very exploitative of, of, of nature. But we oftentimes do not talk about the, the natural cost of, of war, right, as not being accidental to it, but really being the field, right, in which it happens. We talk about human, human life and loss, but how nature itself is impacted. Right, by our own acts of aggression, right, and development as being part of this conversation, right? So that perhaps it could be the case that an expanded conception of human rights and how that includes technology and nature can also help us to move into a more ecological just world. I think that's a, a very uh, wise observation and, and uh, one that is not treated directly in the book, but I think flows very readily from, uh, from what we're talking about in the book. Um, it, there's no question that nature is constantly exploited uh, by various forms of technology. And um, again, how we want to define our relationship to both the technology and the natural world will implicate human will implicate rights uh, inevitably. And we the whole point of this book is let's get ahead of the curve here. Let's think about it now rather than when it's too late. Thank you, and um, I, I want to shift gears a, a little bit, uh, and, and I want to say that I find, um, as a parent of young children, uh, there were two chapters in this book that I thought were absolutely amazing to me, uh, right, and, and helped me think some questions anew as I'm dealing with, with parenting, uh, right? You, you have the chapter on, on gender 2.0, uh, right, and also the changing conceptions of privacy, yeah, uh, yeah. right, and I think the, those are two things. We, we know that, uh, you know, younger generation than um, let's say from 2000 on have a different conception of how they have experienced the world in terms of, of racial racial and gender identity because they are there's some um, I don't 
normalization uh, in some ways of, of um, exploration and fluidity in a way that for younger generations was not the case. But this generation, I'm thinking about, you know, um, millennials and younger um, iGens and others are living their lives somewhat publicly, right? So that the notions of privacy that they are living into are very different, let's say, from, from those of us who grew up, you know, in the 80s or 90s or earlier. So um, I wonder, and for me, right, both things are interconnected, right? The, the ways in which gender, right, is being then performed publicly as well. And what we consider to be private is very different from our younger generation. So uh, as a parent, right, I, I thought some of the ways in which you kind of articulated uh, these new uh, evolutions, not only on gender, but also in private, in, in terms of privacy to be very compelling. And I wonder whether, you know, you can say a word to parents, uh, right, like myself and others, as we are kind of raising, right, a generation of children that understand gender and privacy very different uh, from what we inherited. So uh, on gender, I would say uh, to parents, be calm. And on privacy, I would say be vigilant. Um, and what I mean by that is that you're absolutely right. Gender fluidity, which has always been, mm-hmm. has always existed. It's not as if there's anything new about it. It's just that we finally are becoming far more uh, adept and willing to uh, to talk about it. And as you said, newer generations to live it out and to live it through. And that has profound implications for our understanding of rights, because frankly, the human rights world has lagged behind, uh, even when it comes to something as, as straightforward as um, gender identity or marriage equality and so on, much less issues around a right to transition or a right for intersex children to defer the determination of their gender, biological gender, until they are old enough to to know uh, what they want uh, for themselves. So uh, I think the, the word to parents on that issue is take a deep breath uh, and uh, be calm and let it all hang out and right. and advocate for uh, a a changing world and a changing in understanding of rights. When it comes to privacy, and you're absolutely right, this is a generation that has far less inhibition about uh, their expression. And yet at the same time, what we're seeing, of course, on with such things as shaming, uh, uh, mm-hmm. internet shaming, for example. Um, we are seeing that that the technologies and the lack of privacy that those technologies uh, provide us could, can potentially have very damaging impacts. Uh, and when you're, when, when all of that uninhibited uh, lifestyle is splattered across the internet, then one thinks again about whether the European notion of the right to be forgotten may have some sense to it. Because, you know, when that X um, splatters those uh, uh, candid photographs that you were assured would never see the light of day, when those are splattered all over the the world, um, one becomes more cautious about uh, about this issue of the right to be forgotten and about one's privacy. So in this area, I think, uh, again, rights have not kept up to date with new developments in technology. And the fact that all of us, for example, 
automatically opt into having our data be shared when we do such things as follow a GPS when we're in a strange city. We're automatically we, or or log on to any of our smart devices that we we have automatically agreed that our data will be can be shared can be stored and retained by third parties and potentially shared. And again, the the current rights regimen does not speak effectively, though I must say the European Union, as usual, is leading the way in trying to, to make some changes in that regard, but does not speak effectively to those new technological developments. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. I will keep those things in mind as I'm, as I'm parenting, be calm right, and be vigilant. <laughs> Which, which we are, but you know, for, for, for the parents who might be listening to this or, or guardians, I think uh, one of the benefits of that I draw from these two chapters in particular was was really the the call for us to to understand that things are changing and evolving, and it requires of us to be not only learners but be engaged in yes. in new ways in in a world that is rapidly changing, that nobody has a good answer at the moment, right? So be part of that uh, experiment to be responsible, right, and to be intentional in our relationship. I think it's, it was uh, really important uh, for, for us to remember. And for me, th- th- those are some really good takeaways. Thank you. And, and, and this leads me to say that the book was originally conceived uh, as a book aimed at uh, college students particularly as freshman reads for undergraduates. It may or may not have quite hit the right level uh, in that respect, uh, but the goal was to say, you know, you all are the ones who are going to have to be making the decisions around these issues Mm -hmm. in the next 5, 10, 20 years. This is your generation's challenge. Uh, And uh, being open to this and encouraging people and saying, we don't have all the answers here. The book doesn't pretend to, to give all the answers. What it's trying to do is to frame these challenges and to offer some suggestions of where rights may be going, but ultimately to say these are the challenges and you are the ones, the next generation, that will need to make the decisions to meet them. Thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you for, for the wisdom, right, that you have shared with us not only today, but through your work. Uh, if I might ask you one last question, right, thinking as somebody who has been a defender, right, of, of human rights and, and of humanity, um, what does it mean to be human today? What are our uh, responsibilities, right, as, as human agents in this world? <laughs> you ending with a simple question. What does it mean to be human? There, there. Thank you for that, Elias, that, that uh, simple question to me. You know, um, I, I think on one level, it isn't all that different than it has been at least in um, what we would call modernity. And that is to try to understand dignity, uh, to try to shape it, in response to new developments around us, to be uh, defenders and advocates of a world in which dignity and sovereignty and autonomy uh, are fundamental to the covenant we make with one another. That I think is still uh, as it has been um, at least since the creation of the Universal Declaration in 1948, and probably in some instances long before that, that is at the heart of 
of, of at least part of what it means to be a good human being, not just a human being. A human being is just a collection of, of water and sinew. But what we're talking about is what does it mean to be a good human being? And, uh, and I think it doesn't mean anything too different than it probably meant uh, to some people, at least uh, several thousand years ago. Uh, but certainly within our own lifetimes, it, it, it revolves around that concept of dignity and autonomy embedded within a covenant with one another. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. My word. pleasure to, to be with you. I really appreciate the chat. And, and again, uh, I've been in conversation with Reverend Dr. William Schultz, author of The Coming Good Society, Why New Realities Demand New Rights.